Thank you all for joining us this morning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, kids, you are dismissed up to Grace Place. We love you. You can go have fun. We'll be praying for you. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, my name's Tim. I'm the pastor here at CF. And again, just thank you so much for choosing to worship with, this, with us this morning. Uh, Chicago is filled with a lot of wonderful, wonderful churches that love the Lord and are proclaiming the gospel this morning. The fact that you chose to spend your Sunday with us today, uh, it means a lot to all of us. So thank you very much for everybody who came out. Uh, this morning, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible around you, but you can open your Bibles to Mark 16. Mark 16. If you are using a CPAC Bible, just open right up to that bookmark. You should be right at Mark 16, ready to go. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, and the one in front of you is relatively nice, uh, take it. We'd love to give it away to you. Uh, I would like to thank, as we get going, a lot of people. This is one of those weekends where uh, it takes so many people to make this weekend happen, and I'm just so thankful for everybody who, um, everybody who came for our Good Friday service, for, for those who helped be part of that service, uh, for uh, Daniel putting in extra song time this week and the whole band putting in extra time, everybody who came out to help clean and decorate, um, the artwork that you see on the walls and the bookmarks that are at the front table. If you didn't get a bookmark, make sure you grab one. All of that was made by people within our church, led by Leslie Rico. Um, and so grab one of those bookmarks on the way out. Like I said, check out all the artwork, uh, all the decorating, the, again, the band, everybody. There's just so many people to thank. Thank you so much uh, for making this and, and caring about this church and loving this church and serving this church and making weekends like this happen. Um, so this morning, we, as I said, are going to be in Mark 16. We all have expectations. It's, it's built into who we are, right? We have ideas about how something is going to happen based on our knowledge, based on our experiences. We combine all of the data we have taken in, and it helps to form and determine our expectations. But what happens when our expectations don't match our reality? What happens when, we, when what we expected is different than what actually happens? My mom is uh, the, the, the queen of uh, hyping things up. She is the hype man of our family. She is great at turning a, a very simple uh, day of running errands into a big adventure. She is great at just rallying the troops, getting everyone excited, and, and we'll just go and do something. But sometimes... She's too good at her job, and she raises the bar too high, and the hype doesn't match the expectation, right? The hype doesn't match the reality. So one time when we were little, I was probably eight or nine. My, my little brother was probably four or five, and mom did one of those. She goes, all right, everybody, let's go. Get in the car. We're going for a road trip. This was a thing that would happen from time to time. And so we get in the car. We had some family friends with us, loaded up into my dad's big van, where are we going? Don't worry about it. And like, we're just excited. We're going somewhere. It's a surprise. We're all pumped. We keep pestering. Where are we going? They won't tell us. Eventually, they say, we're going to Indiana. And that is a big deal because we're going to a different state. We don't know what we're doing, but we're going to a different state. And we're on the expressway. And we're going fast. And we're seeing the billboards. And like, this was in the like 90s. So you had the, like, the Dennis Rodman hair, different color billboard down on, going on 90. Like, it was awesome. We didn't care where we were going. And we're driving, and we're driving for an hour, hour and a half, whatever it was. And we finally, we stop. My dad pulls in to a truck stop in Indiana. And we get out of the van. And 
my, my little brother gets out and he kind of surveys the scene and he takes a few deep breaths and he goes, this is Indiana? Indiana stinks. My apologies to those who are Indiana Hoosiers. The hype didn't quite match the reality. What happens when we experience those times? What do we do when our expectations differ from our experience? Today we're going to look at Mark's account of the resurrection and the expectations that got tied to it by not only the women who arrive at the tomb, but also us, ourselves. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into Mark 16. Uh, please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are good and we celebrate you and we rejoice in knowing you and rejoice in what you have done for us in sending your son to die for us. God, we confess this morning we come before you knowing full well that it was our sins that placed Christ on the cross. Knowing full well that we play a part in his death. And Lord, we confess our sins to you this morning and we rejoice and rest in the fact that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray for our kids this morning, for those kids who are up in Grace Place, those kids who are among us. Lord, help us to lead them well, to love them well, to serve them well, to point them to you in the way that we teach them, in the way that we interact with them, in the way that we worship and interact with one another, that the, the next generation, that our kids are learning about who you are and about how good you are and how much you love them. And that you are revealing yourself to them by the way you reveal yourself to us and we interact as a church. God, I pray for our community. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the way you have held us together. I thank you for the way that you have built this place and led this place. God, we pray that you would continue to bind us together. That you would continue to encourage us, strengthen us, and help us to love each other well and to care for one another well. God, I pray that this morning, not only here at CF, but this morning around the city, around the country, around the world, that today is a day of salvation, that today is that day for some people, that today is that day where they come to know you as Lord and Savior, that they come to accept the free gift of grace that is being offered to them through Jesus' death and resurrection. I pray that today is that day that they can look back on years from now and say, that's when my life changed. I pray that this morning is that morning for some people. God, as we open your word, as we hear from you, as you remind us of the resurrection, remind us of the joy and the power and the majesty on display, Lord, that you would help us to hear what you have for us this morning, that you would help us to understand, you would help us to respond to what you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to read through Mark 16, uh, and, then we're gonna, and then we'll come back and talk about it. So Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went, in, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone to, uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Expectations. The women arrive at the tomb expecting an obstacle. These women had been with Jesus throughout his final days, and now they are going to the tomb at the beginning of the week. They were dedicated to Jesus. They were with him. They came up to Jerusalem with him. They were followers of his. They were there when he was crucified. They were there when he was buried. That's how they knew what tomb to go to. They were there at the empty tomb. These women are the eyewitnesses to the whole thing. And if the story of the resurrection is made up, if this is all just a myth and a fairy tale, this is not the way you would do it. Because at that time in history, at that time in Jewish culture, you wouldn't put women at the center of the story. You wouldn't make them the linchpin that holds it all together because their testimonies would be questioned and disregarded. The word of a Jewish woman didn't stand at all in a legal court system, and it stood very little in the court of public opinion. So if the early church was trying to come up with some kind of story to explain why, where the body went, if this was all fabricated, why not make up a story that people would actually believe the first time they heard it? This is God stepping in and saying, even now in the resurrection, I'm doing something that completely alters everything about how society functions. On their way to the tomb on this Sunday morning, the women realize they have a problem. They have an obstacle before them. It says in verse 3, as they were going, they realized they didn't have a plan to roll away the giant stone that had been placed in front of the tomb by the Roman soldiers. They arrived expecting an obstacle to getting to Jesus. We place obstacles between ourselves and Jesus all the time. We have the obstacle of self-righteousness, pride, ego. I can do it all myself. I got this. I'm smart enough. I'm good enough. I help people. I take care of people. I know people that are way worse than I am, so I'm pretty good. Why do I need Jesus? Why do I need church? Why do I need this Christianity thing? Because I can do this pretty much on my own. Or you swing the pendulum the other way, and we have the obstacle of shame. I'm too broken. I'm too messed up. I've sinned too much. I've sinned too often. I'm not lovable. I'm not likable. I'm not worth it. Why would God care about me? And you have the obstacle of hurt. Maybe you've experienced hurt from a specific Christian or a Christian community which caused you to doubt the very goodness of God. Or even just looking at the darkness and evil and hurt that is within our world, it causes you to begin to doubt and question, is this really real? Is God really who he says he is? The women show up expecting an obstacle. The resurrection removes obstacles. We see it in verse 4. Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The obstacle the woman faced 
was removed for them. The obstacle to them experiencing the results of the resurrection had been taking, taken away. That stone had not been removed by man or by reasoning or by personal experience or some vague spiritual notion. It was removed by God himself. That's what he does. The stone was an obstacle for the women. It wasn't for Jesus. God doesn't roll away the stone so that Jesus can get out. He rolls the stone away so that others could get in, so that they could see that he was risen. God alone can make it possible to experience the power of the resurrection. He removes our obstacles and invites us to come and see for ourselves. The resurrection removes the obstacle of pride and ego and self-righteousness by reminding us of who God is, the owner, creator, and sustainer of all existence. And the, that reality is in direct conflict with our drive and our culture. Because our culture likes to tell us that we are the most important thing going today. Your thoughts, your opinions, your beliefs are the highest. And regardless of how it offends or affects others, no one can tell you you are wrong about anything. From politics to religion to sexual identity to whether or not you put fruit on a pizza. You don't. Just clearing that up. The world wants to tell you that you are a self-sufficient, independent island of awesome. And the reality is you have value. You have worth. But it's not about you. It's about being made in the image and likeness of God. Just the fact that you exist brings you value, shows that you have value and worth. All of existence does not boil down to us. It boils down to Jesus the creator and sustainer and ruler of all things. His greatness supersedes anything this world can offer. Because anything this world or we can try and offer to God, anything good about this world is a gift and grace from God in the first place. It already belongs to him. Which means your impressiveness, your, this idea that you can somehow outweigh your bad with your good, somehow you're going to be able to work enough to impress God, that you're going to be able to win over God's affections on your own through your actions. And because of that, you will be welcomed into heaven and blessed with some kind of karma here on earth. It doesn't work that way. That way of thinking ultimately leads you to say, I have the control. It's me who's in control of this and not Jesus. It flies directly in the face of the gospel. It flies directly in the very reason that we are here celebrating this morning of the resurrection. That way of thinking says, hey, Jesus, thanks for the cross, thanks for the whips, thanks for the crown of thorns, but I got this. I'm going to take care of this myself. You know what? Thanks, and, and I appreciate it, but I need to add a little more. What you did wasn't enough. I'm going to add my goodness. I'm going to add my service. I'm going to add my helpfulness, and that's what's going to put me over the top. Resurrection is greater than your goodness. It is greater than your good works. It is greater than your niceness. It is greater than your service. It is greater than whatever cosmic positivity you think you are storing up. Jesus and his resurrection supersedes it all. You can't save you. You're not good enough because God demands perfection. That's the line in the sand he draws, perfection. And I don't care how good you are. You aren't perfect. The resurrection proves that for us. There's only been one perfect one. He died and rose from the grave. The resurrection helps us to rightly understand our need of a Savior, our need for help, and that our God is that help. Jesus' death and resurrection is that help. 
The resurrection removes those obstacles of shame. Why carry shame? Why carry guilt for something that has already been dealt with? The sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, were paid for by Jesus at the cross. And in the resurrection, he shows us that his sacrifice, that his payment was paid in full. There is no need to carry the shame of your past. If you have already put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are not the sins that you have committed, and you are not the sins that have been committed against you. Psalm 103 tells us as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our transgressions from us. We have no need to doubt, no need to worry about Christ because he himself paid for our sins. It is done, it is dealt with, it's over. It's what he said at the cross, it is finished. You have been set free of those things through the resurrection. So when God sees you, even when he sees you in your rebellion, in your failures, he sees Christ. And he is always satisfied with Jesus. And so he is always satisfied with you. The resurrection removes obstacles. It removes the obstacles of hurt. In John 16, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We will have tribulation. Not maybe, not potentially, not maybe, kind of, sort of, keep an eye out for it. We will have tribulation. This world is messy and broken and hard to live in sometimes. That's not a shock. That's nothing new. But in the midst of that mess, Jesus says, take heart. He says, trust me. I have taken care of this. I have taken care of all of this for you. I've got you if you will trust me. The resurrection is Jesus overcoming the world, overcoming sin and hell and death and Satan and evil in every form. None of that could stop him from rising from the dead. He is the ultimate authority over all things. The resurrection doesn't remove us from the tribulation, but it does remind us that if we will cling to Jesus and by and through him persevere because he overcame the world, then we will as well. The women arrived expecting obstacles. The resurrection, he removes obstacles. The women arrive at the tomb expecting death. I mean, they were at a tomb, right? It's the exact place. You want to go find dead people, you go to the graveyard. They showed up with arms full of spices to anoint a dead body. It was an act of honoring of his life and making it possible for others to see the body without being overwhelmed by the smell. The spices are really a practical acceptance of Jesus' death. And even after seeing the stone rolled away, they went into the tomb and they went in assuming they were going to see a dead Jesus lying there. Everything about what they had seen that weekend, everything that they had heard, everything that they experienced told them that Jesus was going to be in that tomb dead and buried. Everything logical, everything obvious, everything right in front of their face told them they should expect the natural. But the resurrection is supernatural. The resurrection brings life. The women walk into the tomb and it's not Jesus lying there dead. He's nowhere to be seen. But instead there is a young man dressed in all white. We're going to assume it's an angel. 
But what's he doing there? I mean, he's not tending to Jesus. Jesus is long gone. He's not guarding the tomb. He just let these ladies walk right in. No, he's there for them. He's there for those people seeking Jesus. He's there kind of as a translator to help them understand what they were experiencing. And so he says to them in verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Do not be alarmed. It's kind of the standard angelic greeting when humans interact with heavenly beings. Don't be afraid. Everything is fine. You're in the right spot. The one you saw crucified and buried, he is risen. He's not here. Come and see for yourself. And it's interesting, of all the things that that this angel could have called Jesus, all the ways he could have referred to him, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, any of those things, he says, Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth. If you're reading and you go in John 1, And there's these rumors starting to bubble about this teacher, this rabbi, who might be the Messiah, might be the chosen one, might be that one God had promised who was going to restore Israel and make all things new, that maybe he was here, maybe they had found him. And somebody said, who is he? He says, it's that Jesus of Nazareth. And somebody in the crowd says, what good could come out of Nazareth? Its reputation was a nowheresville kind of town. Nothing good ever happened there. He was Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Only the worst of people are crucified. It was a badge of dishonor not only for the person, but for their, friend, their family, their friends, their lineage. The angel refers to him as that guy from nowhere who suffered the worst death possible. This is a declaration that those things those things that here on earth are negatives and blemishes on his reputation serve only to intensify the reality that he is alive and glorified. The one crucified is risen. These things are linked together. Because without the resurrection, without this Sunday, we are still stuck. It is the declaration of the acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus. The resurrection is the exclamation point on what Christ came to do. It is because of the resurrection that our sins have been paid for and we can find life, eternal life, yes, but also content, fulfilled, satisfied life here and now. The resurrection brings life, full and complete, abundant life. These women get no other proof beyond the statement from this man and the fact that Jesus isn't there. In this moment, they are confronted with the reality That Jesus really is who he said he is. He is the Messiah, and more than that, he is God in the flesh who did exactly what he said he was going to do. Suffer, die, and rise again. Now we see in verse 7, the angel tells the women, go, tell his disciples, go tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. After seeing and experiencing this new Reality, they are told to go and tell. Go remind the disciples that Jesus is going before them to Galilee. Go tell those disciples. Go tell the guys hiding in the upper room that Jesus is alive. This response 
this instruction, this desire for Jesus to be with his disciples, to be with them again, is a reminder to them and to us that our past failures do not define our future in Christ. Our past failures, your past failures, do not define your future in Christ. These guys abandoned Jesus. Peter denies even knowing he existed. But in the resurrection, there is hope, there is forgiveness and grace to be had, even for those who abandon Jesus. Outside of Jesus, outside of a relationship with him, by our nature, we are enemies, rebels, dead in our trespasses and sins, is what Paul would say in Ephesians 2. We are dead and stuck. That's the condition. That's the default wiring. That's who we are by nature. It is a helpless and hopeless state. It is the problem all of mankind has been dealing with since Adam and Eve. It is the problem of evil, the reality that man is not inherently good. Man is not inherently kind. And because of that, we are at odds with and on the complete other side of the spectrum from the holy, righteous, perfect, good God who made all things and holds all things in his hands. But he is a God who is rich in mercy. A God with great love for us. And because of who he is, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we can be saved. Hear me when I say this, please. Outside of a relationship with God, you are dead. You are stuck and trapped. You have no hope. You have no future. But God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. God, not because of anything that we have done, can do, will do. Not because of anything we bring to the table, but just because of who he is. God loves you. And he loves you so much he sent Jesus to die for you. But death does not have the final word in this story. Jesus does. He is alive. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. And just like when the women go to find him, Jesus is on the move still today. Because Christ died and rose again, for those who would put their faith in him, we too will live forever with him. Because where there is death, the resurrection brings life. Where there is hurt, the resurrection brings healing. Where there is pain, it brings a balm of comfort. Where there is old, it is made new. What has been broken has been fixed. What is separated is reconciled. What is lost is found. That's what the resurrection does. And this is true for anyone who would admit their need for a Savior, believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins in their place, and choose Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. The women expected obstacles. The resurrection removes all obstacles. The women expected death. The resurrection brings life. You and me, we come to church on an Easter Sunday, and we expect an ending. And this is the one we get from Mark in verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What do we do with that ending? People for hundreds of years have been trying to wrestle with the ending of Mark's gospel and make it a little more palatable. They come up with all kinds of theories. There's a theory that Mark's gospel actually goes a lot longer, but the page got ripped and lost. 
There's a theory that says Mark was writing his gospel. He gets to the end of verse 8 and he drops down dead. People would rather believe Mark dropped down dead and didn't actually intend for this ending to be there than to sit in that ending. Every day is a good day to have your Bible opened, and today is one of those days. Because my guess is if you have your Bible open, right after verse 8, there's some parentheses, and it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. It's kind of universally understood that the rest of Mark's gospel, the longer ending as it's referred to, was written well after Mark's gospel. That he intended to finish us off in verse 8. And so I can understand why people want to put a bow on the end of Mark's gospel. To try and make it a little more satisfying. It bums me out when a movie doesn't have resolution or a book doesn't have a resolution. I want the happy ending. I want to know where the characters end up. I want that finality. We want resolution. We want the happy ending. Mark doesn't really want to give us one. Or at least not one that we're used to. See, when we talk about resurrection, when we talk about Resurrection Sunday, we talk about Jesus showing up in locked rooms. We talk about Thomas touching the scars or breakfast on the beach or Peter being told to go and feed the sheep. We want those accounts because they wrap everything up nice and tidy for us. But the final words of Mark, what Mark wrote, focus on these women and them taking everything in that they had experienced. I mean, they show up to this tomb not even expecting really or having a plan of how they're going to get in. Yet the stone is moved away. Jesus is gone. There's an angel telling them that he is risen. Everything is really overwhelming. And they are overtaken with trembling and astonishment. And they go away saying nothing because they were afraid. Trembling and astonishment seized them. This word astonishment means amazement. Really, it means there's no place in my brain to understand what I'm experiencing. It is cat got your tongue, dumbstruck, I don't know what I'm looking at. And this is a commonplace reaction for those who interact with Jesus. There's about a dozen different times in the Gospel of Mark where somebody either experiences a miracle of Jesus or hears him teaching and it says that they were seized up with astonishment because what they were doing were getting these little glimpses. These small glimpses, these small looks into what the kingdom of God will look like when Christ returns. He gave people these little glimpses into what the kingdom of God was going to be like when there would be no more pain, when there would be no more suffering, when Christ rules and reigns fully and completely. And when he did that, it blew people's minds. But it also says that these women were afraid. And you know, to be honest, when we sit and contemplate the majesty, the holiness, the power of God, it should invoke in us a very normal reaction of fear and awe because he is so big, so good, so holy, so set apart, and we are not. The, rim, the women's reaction here, I think, is the exact way that any one of us would react. And they're silently trying to process what just happened. I think it's ironic that for three years or so, Jesus is out doing miracles, right? He's healing people, and he's bringing little girls back from the dead. He's doing all of these things, and how's it go? When he does something, he does a miracle, and then he tells the person, don't say anything to anybody. Keep this to yourself. 
We're not at that point where it's time to reveal me yet, right? And then what does that person do? Nine times out of ten, they go and they tell the whole town. They tell everybody. Now the one time somebody is told by an angelic being, hey, go and tell everybody Jesus is alive. We don't have to play secret anymore. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The one time they're told to go tell everybody, and they leave, and they don't say nothing to anybody. They tell no one at least for a little while. We know that this fear that overwhelmed the women, that kept them quiet, it doesn't last. You don't even have to read other Gospels to read that. The fact that we have this account right here, the only people at the tomb are the women and the angel. The only ones who know that they were caught up in fear and trembling and astonishment were the women. And so eventually they open their mouths. Eventually they tell people. Eventually, they shared what they learned. See, this ending is not really an ending. It's an opportunity. Mark gives us an ending that leaves us saying, now what? What's next? There's got to be more to the story, and we know that there is. We come to the end of the Gospels. We come to the resurrection, and we expect an ending, but the resurrection is the beginning. Because Jesus shows up and he appears to hundreds of people over the course of a couple of weeks. He has intimate personal, personal react, interactions with people. The disciples get sent out to go and preach the gospel, to teach what they have learned. And they begin to preach in the name of Jesus. And they stand trial. And they are threatened with death. And they refuse to recant their faith. Due to the persecution of people like Paul from Tarsus, the Jewish Christians flee to other parts of the world. They go to Gentile lands, bringing with them their faith, bringing with them the gospel, and it spreads. Peter begins to focus his ministry on the Gentiles, on those outside of the Jewish faith. And in a very messy, imperfect way, the church is formed, and it works together to figure out how to be a place where everyone can come together to worship Jesus. Paul goes from Christian persecutor to church planter. The gospel goes forward over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. People will go from being helpless and hopeless and lost, trying to earn work and win their way to heaven, and they will have an encounter with God. They will have an encounter with Jesus, and they will learn and understand that God came and died for their sins, and that they are of hope and the place and the identity and the fulfillment and the longing for something that they have been craving their whole lives is found in Christ and him alone. Over the course of history, millions will be baptized. Churches will be planted. It will not all be perfect. It will be messy and at times really ugly. The resurrection doesn't make everything perfect right now. The women leave silent and overwhelmed with fear. Being a Christian doesn't magically fix everything. It's not perfect but we know throughout history that there are men and women who will stay faithful to the gospel. In spite of wars and attacks and false teachers, they will stand firm in the truth of the gospel and who Christ is. Thousands, thousands, maybe even millions will die because they refuse to recant their faith in Jesus, who is not in the tomb. He is risen. When is the ending of a story not really an ending? When is it a beginning? It's when God raises from the dead. The story isn't over, and it continues today. It continues with you and me. It continues when we say amen at the end of this service, and we go spend the afternoons with our families and friends. 
It continues when we go to school and we go to work and we live our lives day to day allowing the gospel to do what it has been doing since it happened, change our entire lives. So how will you contribute to the story? For some of you, I want to give you an opportunity this morning because I pray that you would enter into deciding to put your faith in Jesus. That you would enter into a relationship with him and in a few minutes I'm going to give you a chance to do that. For those of you who already know, for those of you who already know, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who know the grace and joy and love of God, as you go, as you live in this world, remember that the story isn't over. That you are adding chapters to what God is writing, this story of redemption, this story of calling all things back to himself. He invited you to be part of that story. The story that is one of grace and mercy and love and hope. For those of you this morning who do not have a relationship with Jesus, today I want to offer you a chance. I don't know what you expected coming in here, but I want to give you an opportunity to enter into a relationship with Jesus. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes to give everybody a little bit of privacy, a little bit of peace, a little bit of just being with God. I'm going to pray a prayer that expresses faith in the grace of God. And if today is that day for you, if today is that day where you are ready to accept the the gift of grace given to you through Jesus' death and resurrection, then I invite you to pray this prayer in your heart as I do and accept this grace. You don't have to go verbatim. This is not a magical incantation. You have a real interaction with Jesus in this time. Nobody's looking. Nobody's paying attention. Eyes closed, heads bowed. And I want to invite you in to let your life be changed by Jesus this morning. God, on this Easter, I admit that I need you. I confess my sin to you. I confess I have tried to do things my way instead of your way. And God, I am tired of it and I need help. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And I thank you for that great love. I believe it is through Jesus alone that I can be saved. God, I choose to trust in you and for you to save and lead my life. God, help me. Amen you prayed that prayer this morning, there's a card in front of you in a seat back. I want you to fill it out with whatever contact info you feel comfortable with. And there's a basket in the back of the room. And I ask when we do communion or music, whenever you have a chance, go drop that card in that basket. And I want to follow up with you. I want to answer whatever questions you might have. I want to walk through this with you and just be a resource and a help for you. Because if you prayed that prayer this morning, if today is that day for you, I want to walk with you in that and help you to understand what it is that you have just entered into, to help you understand the love and joy and mercy and grace that you get to experience through being part of the family of God. I don't know what your expectations were for this morning. What I've come to realize in studying this passage for this week and getting ready for Easter, we can expect all kinds of things. But God is always going to supersede our expectations because he is so good and so holy and so perfect.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We thank you. There is none like you, no, not one. God, we come to you this morning in awe and rejoicing and thankful and hopeful. God, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you had a plan that when sin entered the world, you were not phased, you were not befuddled, you were not stopped. That no matter how much sin, no matter how much death, no matter what was going to come, you had a plan and a way to restore all things and redeem all things. God, we thank you for being so intimately involved in our world, for not leaving us to our own devices, but sending your son to die for us. God, there's not enough time left on this earth to truly and fully express our gratitude for who you are and what you have done. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We celebrate you. And God, as we go out into the world, as we leave this service, and we have another Monday, let it not just be another Monday. Remind us, even those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, remind us, refresh us, renew in us a hunger and thirst for you and a hunger and thirst to be dwelling on and resting in the gospel, the good news that God made a way for us, that you made a way for us. Let that be something that sticks in the forefronts of our brains, be on the tip of our tongues, on the tips of our fingers and toes as we go into the world. Let it drive and filter every decision, every interaction. Because the reality of it is life-changing. Lord, we pray that our lives are changed and we live in light of the gospel. God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer of salvation this morning, here and around the world, that today that they might come to know the rest and grace and hope that you have offered them, that you have welcomed them into the family and community that you have welcomed them into, into the family of God. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all that you are, all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you're going to do. We thank you and praise you. And we pray all these things because of Jesus and in his powerful name. Amen.